1: Warning. 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 Trigger Trigger alert. alert. She about to say some real shit.
2: Hello out there. On this Monday, October 8th, it is Columbus Day. But we're reclaiming it and calling it Indigenous People's Day. At least my calendar says both. Thank you for being progressive, uh, calendar company, whoever you are. Kids are off from school today, but you know what? Not us. We are working. What a week. I am so sick of all this work. I'm tired and I'm ready for Christmas break. Where is it? Anyway. It's New York City. It never ends. And that is what brings us to our next guest who works tirelessly to promote graffiti as an art throughout the globe. Somebody who is an advocate, a spokesperson, a connector, as well as an artist. David Chino B.Y.I. Villarente, Brooklyn's own David, has really made major impacts for people accepting graffiti as part of the urban sprawl in the world, and pioneered graffiti in a international publication when there were only a few graffiti zines here and there that were regional and hard to get your hands on in the Source magazine back back in the early nineties. David has also focused his life on helping at risk youth. Not everybody makes it their mission to help kids that are in this demographic because they find it both challenging and a lot of people just throw their hands up and don't care. But David makes it his responsibility to really get in and help people in in an incredible way. And I'm really impressed with him and all his work in that field as well as spreading the message of graffiti to the planet. Please welcome Gino.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: Do people call you David or they call you
1: Dave? I, I uh, answer all emails as David. Okay. My goddaughter calls me David. Okay. And I love the sound of it coming up. So I enjoy being David, but um, most of the world calls me Chino. Most my mom, of- my mom calls me Chino, my grandmother, rest in peace, a lot of my family. But um, but I prefer David.
2: Well, good, because I enjoy I, David. I have been referring to you as David. For the entire week that we have been prepping for this.
1: You also called me David the first time we spoke in Portland. And I was just like, she got it right.
2: Yes. Dave is sort of, I have a cousin who calls himself Dave. And I don't call him Dave either.
1: I like the ring to it. And and sadly, uh, when I set up my email account, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. You didn't think about it. That was the option that was available. And I didn't realize that people would see it in the email address and think that I wanted
2: to be called Dave. So, All right, fair enough. Now we know. Call him David when you see him. Thank you, thank you. So, this podcast talks about subcultures and how they go from micro to macro, how community supports them, your vantage point, your career, your accolades, putting graffiti into a bigger context. I really felt like you were the, the right choice to sort of launch this uh, conversation. So let's talk about when you were young and when you first started writing graffiti. When, how old, and what made you start?
1: I think like most kids that grew up in the 70s, graffiti was a part of the fabric of the city we lived in. There was a mystique about it that was absolutely fascinating to me. Um, Sort of like Christmas. Like, you don't see Santa leave the gift. It's there when you wake up in the morning. Mm. And it was just like, how did this get here? And um, there was this incident that occurred I was with my mom. We grew up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, Fort Greene-Clinton Hill section of Brooklyn.
2: And you're still there, right?
1: Still there. Uh, We were there pre-gentrification when it wasn't so uh, desirable. Um, And we were walking past uh, Catholic school, Queen of All Saints, which is where Biggie went to. Um, We were walking past Queen of All Saints, and the uh, B69 bus pulled up at the intersection of Vanderbilt and Lafayette Avenue. And as the kids were all rushing to the front of the bus, and some of the kids were sneaking onto the back of the bus— These two guys ran up to the bus and started taking tags on the bus. And a lesson learned early in life that the most obvious is the least obvious. There must have been 100-plus people on the corner, and I was the uh, only witness to this uh, relatively harmless criminal infraction that occurred. But it was over my head. I had no idea why they were doing that. Did
2: your mom see too? And did she talk to you about it? She
1: didn't, and it was one of those things that I kind of just soaked up and kept in the back of my head like, what just happened? And I don't think she would have been able to make sense of it for me at the time. But I started looking at graffiti largely because uh, the figurative drawings that I saw on the sides of subway trains spoke to me. So I'd see like Popeye or, you know, I remember seeing uh, Richie Scene's Fantasia car with Mickey Mouse and Shu from the Daily News. And all of these random comic book characters that I knew from popular culture, Saturday morning cartoons or comic books. Really, uh, we were on the 7 train going to Queens, and there was this whole spy versus spy scenario on the elevated 7 train. And I was absolutely fascinated because I read Mad Magazine at the time, like most little boys in the late 70s, early 80s. And I saw the spy versus spy scenario, and I thought it was cool. And I was like, oh, wow, that's dope. And I think later on that ride, I noticed Conan up on the 7 train. And because I read Marvel Comics, I was familiar with the name— And those were probably the first bits of graffiti that I digested, and then I started to kind of keep an eye on things. And I remember riding the subway with my mom and seeing these Keith Haring chalk drawings on uh, craft paper, the uh, chalk drawings. And I asked her what that was, and she explained to me that somebody was doing them illegally and that it was one man. And in my head, I naively thought that they were mass-produced, and then and, it was like
2: an advertising campaign,
1: and, and exactly. And the whole like concept of this one man being everywhere I went before I arrived was absolutely fascinating. And I was just like, "That's very interesting."
2: And so, so from there, you oh, the spark was lit. Were you always artistic? Not at all. No. So, you do you feel as though as you developed as a writer, your art skills sort of sharpened?
1: Um that's a it was a very long evolution like I grew up wanting to write my name on things and I was sort of a bomber and I did a lot of interior graffiti which meant that I didn't spend a lot of time on the outside of the train producing art <clears throat> but I also think that the era that I got into graffiti started writing on trains in the end of 82 really got my feet wet by 83 and by 84 you know I had skinny pilot tags on the BMTs and INDs. But I don't think the uh, era that I started writing was conducive to being creative. Like, you know, it was a very transitional window. Like, there was considerable overlap. Like, all of the guys from Style Wars were still writing, or at least most of them. But they were all sort of fading away and moving on to other things. So slowly but slowly, a lot of the guys I looked up to... But, you know, if you watch the film you see all of this beef going on in the film. And, you know, um, like it says in the film, graffiti is a vocation and its youthful traditions are handed down from one young generation to the next. In that era of beef is the baton that was passed to my generation. So there was just a lot of beef. Like dudes were going over each other. When I started writing, all of my favorite graffiti writers were involved in some sort of hostile cross-out war. And that was just the tone that was set for my generation.
2: But that really kind of is what New York City graffiti was about. It was about claiming territory and um, you know, overpowering your the ops or, you know.
1: No, I I, I get it and, and I'm one hundred percent guilty of going over people and there's finite amount of real estate and you've got all of this ink, and I'm like, I'm not going home just because this dude got up. So I realized that a bigger marker and a drippier marker would allow me to bury someone else's shit beneath mine, right? So, and then, you know, the older we got, you're at that age where you're just, like, kind of looking for it, like.
2: So when your idols sort of, like, they crossed over, they moved into the galleries, right, in the mid-'80s, and your kid with the drippiest marker, over six feet, right? You're you're two hundred and
1: fifty five pounds, right? At right. You're, years okay. Old. So
2: then what? and they're trying to fade. They're active. They're the Vandal Squad is in full effect. They're like actively trying to completely like subjugate graffiti and remove it. Then what?
1: Um, just continue doing it. Like I hung out until the close to the tail end of graffiti, but I wrote. So
2: c- graffiti ended with the trains. Um, I I be- I think
1: uh, if I'm not mistaken, the last graffitied subway pulled out of service 89 uh, in 89 May 12th 1989. I have the t-shirt. So by <laughs> <laughs> so by 87 at the tail end of 87, I started losing interest. You know, the MTA was systematically eradicating graffiti line by line. Right. So the IRTs were all clean. Most of the INDs were clean. Most of the BMTs were clean. And I kind of felt like the MTA was like, listen, we'll let you guys ride on the J-line, and everyone was going to 121st and Queens, or we'll let you guys ride on the B-line, and everyone was bombing uh, Tishman right by Central Park. But there were only two lines running. And it just, it felt like shooting fish in the barrel. Like, when I was growing up, I could get on the 1 line and transfer to the 2, the 3, the 4, the 5, the A, the B, the C, the D and they were it was saturated in graffiti. And it was like typically graffiti by artists whose work I admired or respected. And there was this younger generation of kids that were trying to just get it in before the trains were clean and then there was this older generation of folks coming back. There was this RIS Ghost uh Van Reese clean train era like they were catching the tail end of the trains sento uh, rd cost all of these guys that were bombing the b-line and then the jays were like all of these new kids some old guys demmer ksw but there were all of these guys bombing the It just felt weird. I was just like, there were only two lines. And not to discount anything that they were doing, because there was some amazing work that was produced during that time. They got Dondi to come back and paint the top to bottom, and Lady Pink did a car, and CNTC5 came back, and TK and Magoo and Ven, and there were all these amazing cars on the B-Line. But there were just two lines, and it became less exciting for me. Okay. Part of bombing trains was that I could bomb the lines that came through my neighborhood or through the areas that I wanted to see my name in. And you were kind of just relegated to either the J-Line or the B-Line. So we started to transition to do streets. Like, I wasn't ready to give up graffiti. So we were sort of like that first generation of train riders that transitioned from s- trains to streets and took a more systematic approach to bombing streets. It really wasn't very popular. It there was There were a not. handful of guys in... Two people that I think most people don't give credit to were Locke and Little Man. And they had destroyed Washington Heights and Harlem. And I was working an ice cream route at the time um, for Dolly Madison Ice Cream in East New York on Jamaica Avenue.
2: And what does that consist of?
1: Loading a truck in the morning. And then we I had— I just
2: imagine you on your bike with a bunch of cones. No, we were in—we were—that
1: <laughs> <laughs> would have been awesome. But we were in a truck, and we would get different routes, so— One of the routes was in Pelham Bay. We'd go to Douglaston, Queens, uh, Bayside, um, Little Neck, Great Neck, and we would do food emporiums and all of these big supermarkets that were places. And one of the routes we had was Washington Heights, Harlem, the Bronx, and periodically we would just end up in different areas delivering ice cream. Okay. But um, it gave me a better understanding of the streets in New York City, and I was like, I want to go right on that. I want to go at that. And Locke and Little Man were really getting it in. And they were, like, two of the earlier guys. And then, of course, Easy and Jaws mm-hmm. killing streets. My killing bu- it. My buddy TK in Brooklyn, Magoo, my partner Trim. And there were a host of other guys bombing streets. But <clears throat> this was the first wave of, like, systematic street graffiti. Okay. You know, historically, <clears throat> because there were trains to pick from, most people painted trains. You know, guys like Blade and Comet, did streets, uh, per in Lace, NYC, were doing streets, uh, Trike and Sake were doing streets, and there were a handful of guys that did streets previously, but it really wasn't like a popular movement until maybe the late 80s, 86, 87, 88. Okay. I think it really started to gain traction here in New York City.
2: So you are ice cream loader by day. Yes. Young graffiti writer by night. Yes. And what were your aspirations for your future?
1: You know, there really wasn't a lot of thought. Like, I still had a, a foot sort of in the street. And I do workshops, so this is one of those things that I understand now. But, you know, you're still in the danger zone before you're 25 years old. You know, um, your front frontal cortex That's isn't fully especially,
2: developed. Especially in, in men. Without it. Males,
1: males. So we're impulsive, and we don't think, and there's zero consequential thinking attached to any of our actions, and I could have been persuaded to do something just by a phone call. Yeah, we got this going on, and all of a sudden, I'm in the wrong direction doing some real bad shit with a bunch of bad people. So, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of thought to that, like— To be quite honest.
2: So you weren't saying to yourself, like, I have to go to college because I want to be X or I have to, I don't want to go to college because I'm going to do this. They're just, you just rolling.
1: Not at all. I was kind of going day by day. And to be quite honest, the bar was set so low at that stage in my life. You know, like, going to jail was a legitimate or viable option. Like, that was just something I was going to deal with if it had happened. Right. It's not something that I ever plan on doing. If you ask me today, but back of then course. but back then it was a legitimate option in my head for some reason. Okay. So, um, and it comes with maturity, but uh, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of bad things sure. outside of graffiti. And I think that uh, graffiti does have the potential to be a gateway crime. It does. And, you it, know, c- it can. Well. You, you uh, grow comfortable shoplifting. One of the uh, unwritten laws of graffiti is that we rack things. No one's going to buy anything. And then the really cool trick was that you can shake people down for the shit that they racked, which made it a lot easier. So you get comfortable with stealing. You get very comfortable with breaking the law.
2: Right. Breaking and entering into... And trespassing. Absolutely. And and then it's light work compared to real crime. So (laughs) without a
1: doubt. So, you know, um, and then we were doing streets and you were so seasoned from bombing trains. Like... You know, all of my favorite graffiti writers were absolute dicks when I first met them. You know, like, everyone was so egocentric. It's part of the culture. It, it was not a very user-friendly culture. Indeed. And and to be quite honest, you know, 90% of the people that I looked up to, like, that first encounter, or first meeting them was so disappointing. In hindsight, I almost wish I had a time machine and can go back and just not meet them. <laughs> but um, but it was sort of like par for the course, right? Um. I think there's this like hazing process that needs to exist, and, and it was a very stringent, like strict process. Mm-hmm. But I think it's designed to weed out the people that aren't serious about this. Sure, absolutely. Right? So I got my pockets dug a thousand times when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, and people are sizing up their feet next to mine to see if my sneaker fits them and patting my pockets and shit. And then you get a little bit older and you get a little bigger, and then you're the one taking paint from people and patting pockets and— mm-hmm. But you get really comf- you can get really comfortable with that if you don't know where to draw a line.
2: How did the David then sort of transcend this self-destructive behavior to launch the first ever graffiti column in a national well, international magazine, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I believe there were a couple other publications before the source. Crazy Kings.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But I think the source was the first. Well,
2: it it was macro compared to um, some guy making a couple couple issues from New Jersey. When did you sort of figure out there's a bigger play here?
1: So, I believe around 1991— I was just probably knee-deep in bad behavior, and uh, I remember being in Macy's one day, and I was at the ground floor level, and where the escalator is in the cosmetics department, it, there's mirrors on either oh, side, I and I walked past the mirror, and I doubled back to look at myself because I didn't recognize my own reflection, and I had, like, I mean, at the time, it felt like a million-dollar watch. I had it. $1,700 Tag Heuer on my wrist, and I had brand new Timberland boots and new jeans and a new leather jacket and new polo sweater and fitted hat in bags in my hand. And I stopped and I looked at myself and I was like, I don't even know who that dude is. And I kind of kept it moving, but it resonated with me. And I was just like, oh, that's kind of disgusting. It's one thing, to, like we grew up poor. It's one thing to be poor. It was another thing to be absolutely greedy at that point. And I realized I was being really greedy and excessive with the stuff that I was doing. And systematically, slowly but slowly, most of my good friends who I was doing dirt with were all um, tied up with cases. There was this really interesting turning point in 91, 92, where I should have been with one of my friends in a car. And I ended up going out on a date with somebody and never made it. In the middle of the night, my friend's girlfriend's beeping me. Oh, yeah. Asking me if I'm with the rest of these guys. And I was like, no, they should be home by now. And then she called me in the morning and said, listen, they got arrested. They're being arraigned in the Bronx court. So that Macy's story, I saw myself in the mirror, didn't recognize myself, and it kind of stuck with me. And I remember thinking to myself, what am I going to do as an adult to sustain myself? Like, do I pull a scheme? Do I rob somebody? Do we rob a drug dealer or whatever might have been the options back then? Like, can I feed a family doing that? Can I sustain myself? And the hamster wheel in my head was spinning. And that Sunday, um, I saw an ad in the Daily News that said, if you want to go back to school, you can uh, apply for SUNY or CUNY system, and we'll waive the application fee. And I remember thinking to myself, "Ah, that's interesting, but where is this place in Albany? And the address was across the street from where I was living. And I was like, do I? I don't think I don't. I, I don't have a good reason for not walking in. So I walked in and I said, what are the best schools in the system? And they're like Buffalo, Binghamton, Albany at the time. And I was like, cool, I want to apply for those. What's the furthest? They were like Buffalo and it's one of the top schools. So I was like, all right, that's my first choice. So I go to um, see my friends arraigned and they're talking about giving them 12 to 25 years in life to life, right? And I was just like, oh, that's such an open and vague sentence, 12 to 25 years possibly life. And I'm just like, oh, this is scary shit. I should have been in the car or I could have been in the car with them. And uh, it was the longest ride home from the Bronx to Brooklyn. But when I got home, there were two acceptance letters for Binghamton and Buffalo in my mailbox. And I thought to myself, I know what I'm going to do this September. I'm going to leave New York and I'm going to go to school. And most of my friends thought I was joking or crazy, and it was such an abrupt, like, nobody knew what motivated the move. So, further subtext. I dropped out of school in junior high school. I became—I I had a medical injury. Okay. They thought they might have to amputate a portion of my foot. All okay. of my toes are still intact, thankfully. Thank but um, But I missed 36 days of school with a serious infection in my foot. I was held back that year— And I just lost interest in school. I didn't understand why I was repeating the seventh grade again. And graffiti kind of came into my life. And older dudes on my block were in gangs and started trouble. So did you
2: have to get a GED?
1: Yeah, so I kind of went through the motions of staying in school until the ninth grade. Okay. I got pushed through junior high school because my principal said she was only promoting me because if she held me back, she'd have to spend more time in the same school with me and that she felt sorry for my mom. So that's why I got through junior high school. And then uh, in the ninth grade, one of my teachers told my mom during a parent-teacher meeting, I wish he would come in just so I could see what he looks like. And I felt terrible that she took a day to show up at school and to find this out. So we had a meeting with the guidance counselor, and he suggested that I drop out and maybe take my GED. So with absolutely nothing to bridge my sixth-grade education with This GED test. I took it. I scored over a 300 and I got my GED. Um, So later, and so I had no uh, education, a formal education to bridge my sixth grade education with a full time college schedule, but I dived right in and 3.8, 4.0, my first, second semester, and I did really well. But uh, more importantly, it was the first time I grew up in the hood. Like, most of my friends will tell you that there was gunshots outside my window. Growing up, like, all of the kids I grew up with eventually hustled. They started hustling when we were 13, 14, 15 years old. All of the kids that I played tag with on the block and hung out with growing up, all sold drugs at some point. Coming from, like, the environment I lived in and living upstate, where I could leave my door and my window open when I left the house— and like it was the you know pathetically it was the first time i was in an environment with people like striving for progressive goals and it was absolute culture shock but
2: did you embrace it or did you sort of like reject it it, it? it took
1: it took a little bit of getting used to and you know sadly you don't always realize there's another side until you're presented with an option sure your way of living is the only way that you know And it was the first time in my entire life that I was in an atmosphere surrounded by people that were striving for progressive goals and that were, like, legitimately down to help me if I needed something, you know. And I realized it was a different way to live and kind of, like, started to regroup. And, you know, it's like when you're in the mirror, you can only see but so much of yourself and you step back and the image becomes a lot more clear. And I really think I needed to step back to get a better sense of what was going on. At the end of the school year, I did get a bill. And I was like, I don't know if I can pay this. This is crazy. I'd never been in that amount of debt before, even with my student loans. I came back to New York City. I had some good friends that were working at The Source magazine. Mutual friend of ours, Rob Tullo, shout Reef,
2: out to Shout out to Reef.
1: My dude, Reef. Oh, yeah. Maddie C., John
2: Schechter, Sch- that whole crew. John Schechter?
1: Yeah, that whole original Mind Squad staff. I noticed they had done a graffiti column and they miscredited a lot of these artists. And I was just like, dude, if you guys ever need help with this, like, I know this. And they're like, why don't you do, do the next month? And if it works out, maybe you can continue to do it. So it was sort of on a trial basis. And it was sort of revolutionary, right? There were no mainstream magazines covering graffiti.
2: Absolutely not.
1: So we were the first. in, you know, you flash forward 27 years later, I believe, and you can find graffiti in just about any mainstream publication. Absolutely. High Couture, like anything, anything, popular science, it's in there somewhere, right? Eventually it's going to make the cut. But we were the only mainstream magazine... That was covering graffiti. And
2: to treat it like it was its, you know, not just sort of like a backdrop, that it was, you know, the full feature.
1: Sure. So we started with a half page originally, and I was- um, I remember that. I was uh, sharing the space with unsigned hype. Eventually, it evolved into its a full page, a spread, and then its own section, bomb shelter. And I think that was only after, um, there was an umbrella group that did a survey, and it said that the most popular section in the magazine was a graffiti page amongst our 13 to 35-year-old demographic. And <laughs> the only area of the magazine that sold outside of the market, meaning that it wasn't the target hip-hop demographic that was purchasing it. You had skate kids, skinheads, and rave guys, and everyone on, under the sun that enjoyed or appreciated graffiti. You know, we had a Old school graffiti writers buying it because it might have been the only local publication they could find at Blockbuster where you can find the phase two piece from your generation. So we had all of these older guys buying it that didn't care that like Wu-Tang was on the cover.
2: So do you feel, and this is a constant question I'm always asking myself and other people, is graffiti hip hop?
1: I might get some criticism for this, but this is absolutely fine. I think that graffiti predates hip-hop, right? That, like, the guys that were painting on trains— I
2: agree.
1: I'm not going to um, dismiss Cornbread's contribution to the culture, but what he was doing in Philly and what was going on in New York were just a little bit different. We were doing trains here, and guys were doing pieces. and But none of those guys—when I talk to Blade, and he tells me he was listening to Hendrix mm, while he was they painting— were...
2: A Satch is
1: without a doubt. Black Sabbath and Quick. Rolling Stone and all sorts of other things that weren't hip-hop. And they were listening to Funk at the time. But um it predates hip-hop. So I understand how it's packaged with hip-hop. I understand that the birthplace and that they were simultaneously going on in the same line. spaces Correct. and time and, and I get it. But um it but it has its roots outside of hip-hop.
2: It does, it does. Finally.
1: So, but you know, when <laughs> we when, when we look at the Buffalo Gals on. video, which was one, it was so uh, pivotal, right? It was this early hip hop video where there are B Boys, there's a DJ, there's an girl, MC. Shauna Hoods, who
2: Sha- started Shauna's, PMS with me, was in doubt. that video. Dondi did the t shirts.
1: And uh, Dondi's painting, but you've got all of these hip hop elements happening all in one space. And I think that when it went out to the rest of the world, especially Europe, I think the uh, idea was like, this all exists in the same space, and you can be a B boy, a DJ, an MC. So when I talk to guys overseas, and they're like, do you break dance? I'm like, hell no. They're like, you don't you MC- need to
2: be all five elements. Come on.
1: And I'm like, dude, this isn't like <laughs> some sort of triathlon, or like, I'm not a B boy Iron Man like competition. <laughs> this is like, I write graffiti. <laughs> But I understand how it's rolled up into one package, and I'm not mad at that either. Okay. But I, but I do recognize that it has its roots outside of hip-hop, and it does predate hip-hop. And,
2: and, and don't you feel that, truthfully, that uh, hip-hop has sort of used graffiti and never really supported it? Like, when it wants it, it grabs it, but it doesn't really sort of, like, invest in it as part of the culture in, in a bigger way.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I've quietly s- thought of it as the bastard child of hip-hop, right? Is that, it like, mm-hmm. it's part of the family, but it's not the cousin you're happy to no, see. No, it's no, It's not as warmly in- embraced. And oh, for and so- hi, Bobby. And for <laughs> so many years, it was just, like, rap was, like, there was, a, there was a space for the DJ. There was a space for the backup dancer, and there was a space for the MC. And there wasn't a space for the graffiti writer. And now it's like, for the first time in 40-something years, graffiti's at the forefront, which is absolutely amazing. Yes. It was a very slow evolution, though.
2: Okay. So from the source, you dropped out of school. I'm going to hook you guys up. It turned into your column, your thing for years. Then what?
1: There was this interesting evolution of me starting to grow as a human being and— I was in a corporate environment for the first time. I found myself in editorial meetings. Like, I mean, I guess the statue of limitations is worn off and we can talk about this.
2: 11 years, 11 years.
1: But I was walking around with a gun in my pocket like a couple of months or maybe even during the time that I was working at the source in the beginning, you know? So it was like I still kind of had a foot in the street and was— but the source was really that thing that pulled me out of the street. And I realized that this street hustle and what I was doing in the streets— Like, I would be the only person in an editorial meeting without an Ivy League school education and wondering what the hell I'm doing sitting in this room, but understood that, always understood that my experience gave me a certain firsthand knowledge. School of
2: hard knocks, can't beat it. That
1: none of these people in this room have today, you know? And you can talk about that show, but I was in the room when that happened. And there were all of these really interesting things. So I grew comfortable in that space. This is so funny. In 94, they were like, if you give us your content digitally, we can give you an extra $75. And I was like, oh, I'm going to learn how to use a scanner. And so I started using Quark and Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign. and Quark. I kind of taught myself. <laughs>
2: oh, there's text boxes. I remember those.
1: How to do design work and graphic design and logos. And then um, I got a corporate gig. My first corporate gig was with Adidas, and we went to Chicago with uh, my good friend Todd James, Reese. So what
2: what was your position? Like, what was your job for Adidas?
1: Um, we painted a commercial mural.
2: So you—I'm uh, just backtracking. Mm-hmm. Sure. What I'm trying to get at is when did you realize that graf- you were going to make a living from graffiti? Because I'm sure the source wasn't your only source of income. You couldn't survive. Uh, I worked for magazines for years, uh, I would have been dead, starved to death. When did you decide that, like, this is how I'm going to make a living? I'm Chino.
1: It, It wasn't necessarily a conscious effort. It was sort of something that just kind of continued to evolve where there were more and more opportunities. So I realized that I started shooting photos for the magazine, and I learned how to take a decent photo. And I was getting images published elsewhere and I learned how to design things. So there were opportunities to do design work. And all of our advertisers saw graffiti in the back of the magazine. So I was probably one of the first people they reached out when they needed graffiti. So it was an awesome like avenue for additional side work. Okay. And it just got me geared in a different headspace, you know, like, A year prior to that, I was still doing bad things. And suddenly my focus was on like, you know, like graffiti, like getting up, right? Like I got to go out and do this. Like it was that same drive to like, I got to figure out how to do this and I got to get that job and I got to get this. And it started to feel fun seeing my name attached to projects and, and other things instead of like seeing it up on a wall. That's still satisfying though.
2: It's
1: still the best. Uh, Undeniably, it's the best. It's, it's this insatiable like itch that like, well, you Be could like, never Whoa. fully scratch and satisfy. Yeah, it's always there. Indeed. It was sort of something just that just sort of happened with no real plan. Was that additional opportunities, and I continued to learn different things, and then the years of supporting artists who weren't necessarily famous allowed me to establish good working relationships with people. They went on to do amazing things, you know, 26, 27 years later. So some of your favorite fine artists probably got their first bit of press somewhere in the Graphics pages, you know, guys that are showing at museums and art galleries and doing commissions around the world. Like, some of their first mainstream press was in the source. So establishing good working relationships with people and learning how to navigate this interesting landscape of difficult personality types.
2: Well, don't you feel that... Politics are such a huge part of graffiti culture, especially in New York. Affiliations, you know.
1: So early on in my Source career, I interviewed Henry and Tony Silver. And when Henry started talking about Style Wars, he told me that when he interviewed Cap, he felt like he was betraying his crew. He said, you know, in my head, I was Henrock RTW. You know, it's like... I." been the City Hall. I hit the E's and F's with these guys. Those were my boys. They were my studio. And he was like, I thought I was Henrock RTW. And I had to go sit down with the enemy. And he was talking about interviewing Cap. And he said, you know, had I not interviewed him, we would not have had a good story. And in the spirit of getting a well-rounded story, it's not about my personal feelings.
2: Right. It's it, about reporting. It's
1: about reporting on a culture. And that was really powerful to me because I was still holding grudges and there were people I'd in my head, just didn't like, or you know, that dude got beef with my man. Me, and, and suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, so many of these things became insignificant, right? And I was just like, I'm trying to tell a story here, and you know, I, I realized that what little bit of graffiti the rest of the world got came by way of a couple of books and a couple of films that all happened before 1984. Indeed. And that there was this whole gen- – there were generations of graffiti artists that had never had the light- spotlight shined in their direction or given any attention, that they were generations. And when we look at these books and films, like, yeah, I love Subway Art. It's probably one of my favorite books, and Star Wars is one of my favorite films. But you'll be hard-pressed to find an eye- a letter train in any of these books or films. It's true. You know, the Crime 79 piece uh, uh, that opens up in Subway Art. There's a Is on a CC flat. I mean, the fact that I'm pointing to maybe two things in a thick book suggests or reinforces that there were just very little representation of the guys I grew up looking up to. So, for me, it was a, an opportunity to kind of give back and and salute all of these unsung heroes. And the more I started digging, the more I started learning.
2: Now, do you feel, because you're one of, of the handful of, of the storytellers of this culture— that there is a real representation in the media of what's really happening. No. Absolutely no, not. Right?
1: No. It's I think it's impossible to. And, and I realize from working in print that space and time constraints will prevent you from covering everything you want to cover. But the truth of the matter is that it's also sadly impossible to capture everything you want to capture. Some of your sources are not in the best positions to give you accurate information okay so i I would meet with an artist and i'm like when did you start And he's like i'm the first one that did this and i invented the spray can and and i'm like oh gosh man as relevant as he is none of this information is going to help me and i can't use this and there were people that were detached maybe a little bit overly egocentric and in steadfast in the belief that they created something they did And, and i'm just like gosh like i can't use any of this And some of the most important people, sadly, aren't in the position to tell their own stories.
2: Well, I think there's also—you've been trained in graffiti to, like, sort of stand in the shadows and let, like, your work speak for you. And a lot of people sort of, like, lack the skill set to sell themselves, to feel comfortable talking about their experiences, bragging. While they don't mind bragging on a wall, they— don't like bragging in person. So there are a lot of people shooting themselves in, in the foot or just not being capable of, of doing that. But there are a lot of unsung people that really need and should get credit, but they, they shall not, sadly. Um, not necessarily even anyone's exact fault. It's just there's, there's so many people to cover. It's it's. It would be an unending encyclopedia that could never be completed.
1: Artists are uh, eccentric, and graffiti is a magnet for dysfunction. And the dysfunctional 14-year-old boy that started writing in 1973 is the dysfunctional grown man. Indeed. If, unless he gets some sort of help, which is highly unlikely in a lot of instances. So I was meeting with people that just had Rich history of being crazy, and I'm like, I don't know if I can use any of this yes. interview, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh-huh. And and there was a lot of that going on. So sure. sometimes we profiled the artwork with very minimal text, but if it was relevant to the context of what I was doing, I was like, let's get him in. I never let my personal feelings get in the way of anything I was doing. And in 11 years of working at that magazine, I never once felt compelled to put my own work in there. I felt like that would have well, been I, a I, it, tremendous it been, conflict of interest. It,
2: it would have been, and you know what? Kudos to you because that, the, it really was uh, very selfless and uh, perpetuated the culture in a, in a very positive way. So now here we are. That was the early 90s, 25 years later. We're heading towards 2019. Pew! You have a couple books authored under your belt, and you are coming out with a new book. Yes. Let's talk about it.
1: Yes, we have a book coming out this month at the end of October on the 23rd called The ABCs of Styles. I worked on it with Dana James, and it's an exciting, fun book. It's a children's book. Yeah, yeah. But it's not necessarily meant for children. If you're a fan of graffiti, no matter how old you are, you will enjoy this book. So we've got 26 artists to contribute different letters of the alphabet for the book. There's a poem in there. Each letter is designed by one of my favorite artists. So we've got uh, Lee, Days, Blade, Reese, Keo, Trike, Sess, Wayne, Vio, um, Nicer. Your,
2: be- your bestie, SP1.
1: SP1. Greg LaMarche designed the uh, front and back end of the book, the covers. Uh, Queen Andrea's in the book. And a ton of other uh, exciting folks.
2: Good. I'm ca- I can't wait to check it out. Anything you can do to sort of like connect with the kids, with this culture, has only shown incredibly like positive results. What is your favorite job, book, article, piece in your career? What is sort of the like pinnacle of your career?
1: Um, I don't know if I've reached it yet. Like, right. like, I, I enjoy—I'm um, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've been given. You know, like, this magical carpet ride has um, exceeded any expectations I had being involved in graffiti growing up. It really has. So I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for it. I told this to Say not so long ago. I remember when I was working at The Source, and I was talking to Say about graffiti, and I was so excited. Say Adam, Say Adam. Say, say Adams. yes. And uh, and I was talking to him about graffiti, and I remember he was, like, full-on, like, involved in his uh, job at Def Jam as being art director up there and running their creative department. And now I understand that he was at the stage of his professional career where that was behind him, and he was embarking on something new that he was trying to establish himself in. But I remember him saying, like, I don't want to be known as that guy that just did this, like that football player that's still talking about that one Hail Mary pass that he made in high school. And I was like, but why not? And I mean, this is the twenty year
2: old me like wondering why not? Well, it's funny that he recognized that because I feel a lot of older graffiti writers they are still talking about shit they did when they were sixteen. and that is very sad to me
1: i I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. and I'm gonna get back to that in two seconds. <laughs> For me, right, like, the source was an amazing, like, such an important education in my evolution. It put me in a professional environment for the first time in my life. It was a corporate setting. I was around people. It was an important—it was huge in my evolution, just getting work and being in a corporate atmosphere and learning technology. I wasn't raised in front of a computer. Like, I learned how to use a computer— at the source. Right. And I connected with all of these interesting people that went on to do amazing things that are running ad agencies and record labels and radio stations and a and done really cool projects. But it put me in the setting that I might not have had that experience had I not stumbled into that opportunity at the source. But, you know, it couldn't be the end all. This isn't what I want right. to be remembered for. It's
2: a milestone, not a like a a, a, yeah. a tombstone. Yes. Okay.
1: I guess depending on when you got into graffiti, maybe I'm the guy that bombed the R train. Maybe I'm the guy that did street graffiti. Maybe I'm the guy that took your paint. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm the twelve ounce blogger or the guy that worked at Belton or the guy that published Peace Book or mascots and mugs or curated Rite of Passage or worked on Beyond the Streets or any of these. Other- and I kind of enjoy the fact that like when I meet somebody. They're only familiar with me in that one context. Like, hey, I saw you speak at the film forum about Stations of the Elevated. It was moving. And I'm like, oh, thank you very much. And it doesn't matter if he knows I've done anything else. There's something that he's familiar with that I did, and that's not the only thing that I've done. But with each passing project, like, I'm so involved in it. And then once it's over, I'm like, let's just get to the launch so I can celebrate this and figure out what I'm going to do next. Right. Because this can't be it. So there's always this, like, itch to kind of, like, go on and do something bigger or greater or try and raise the bar or set a more acceptable standard for what it is that we're doing.
2: So this leads into my next sort of question. I'm very interested in hearing about, and I'm sure our listenership is as well, all of your— Youth outreach that sort of speaks to your career and to sort of making a better future for young people?
1: So, I think the first uh, charitable organization I got involved with was uh, the Block Party event with Dana James, my co author. Uh, and it was for the greenhouse program at Rikers Island. And we would raise money for the greenhouse program at Rikers Island annually. A biannually, and create a budget that would sustain this amazing project where people got landscaping skills and created a sustainable environment and learned how to compost and had structured time in prison. You know, idle hands are the devil's tools, and if you sit around long enough, you're going to get in some trouble in prison. So it gave you structured time. Inmates that have work while they're incarcerated are more likely to get hired. Correct. Post-incarceration. And, um, but more importantly, right, a lot of people that end up in jail probably, assuming, may have had a rough road. And not everyone there has a sense of accomplishment a feeling. And there's all of this unused space at Rikers Island, and you create this lush garden that's yours. You've raised it literally from a seed to this lush garden, and it's your garden. And there's a certain sense of, you know— uh,
2: Self-satisfaction! S-
1: self-satisfaction and success and ownership that, I did this. I created this. And, and it's sometimes for some people, sadly, the first time you're going to experience that. And hopefully it won't be the last. Hopefully you get addicted to feeling that, right? But you've learned what it's like to succeed at something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was an amazing program. We did that for a lot of years. I started doing workshops with my good friend, Tattoo X-Men. He ran a program called Paint Straight through the Department of Probation in Brooklyn. And it was for uh, first time, second time youthful graffiti offenders, and I kind of came in as a guest speaker, and I noticed that I came in unannounced. I came in through the back of the room quietly. I sat down waiting to be introduced. One kid turns his head, another kid turns his head. Kids are elbowing each other and whispering to each other. And they knew who I, most of the kids in the room knew who I was, which I think is absolutely amazing because I'm more a part of their grandfather's generation at this stage in <laughs> my life than I am a part of their generation. So the fact that I'm even on their radar or, or, or important them in any capacity, is beyond me. But uh, but what it is is the familiarity makes it such an easier conversation. Absolutely. There's no having to break the ice. Kids aren't sitting there like, why do I have to listen to you? They are all ears, and it really was very transformative. I was like, wow, these kids' faces have all lit up. So uh, there was a kid named Christian from Coney Island that uh, – had a legal case. He got caught for graffiti, and while he was running away, the cops or the police say that he hit somebody or hit an officer, so he was charged with resisting arrest, assault, graffiti charge. And after his graffiti charge, they found more graffiti by him that was old, but he was still charged with it because it was new to them when they found it. Okay. So he was looking at a felony charge, and I was friends with a lawyer And she was just like, I have this good kid. I don't know what to do with him. I said, why don't you try and advocate to have him put in the Paint Straight program? She didn't know what it was. She was successful at getting him placed in the program, and she showed up during the workshop. And she was just like, yeah, the kids love you. Like, this is a really good fit for you. And I was like, I can't do this full time. I'm just kind of here. like, I'm just
2: a guest speaker. I'm
1: just a guest speaker. I'm trying to help my friend out with this program. And then she invited me a couple of months later to a program that was started by the BDS, the Brooklyn Defender Services. So essentially, that's the Brooklyn Free Legal Aid. So if you get arrested in Brooklyn, these are the people that defend you. So uh, the program is called Young New Yorkers, and I went to a uh, benefit dinner. It was an early benefit dinner. They had just completed their very first um, Young New Yorkers workshop cycle, and uh, The young man in the program was named Daniel, and Daniel had a felony arrest for stealing a pair of Beats by Dre headphones. It was a grand larceny charge. Daniel was a senior in high school, and uh, he had a felony on his record. So he was the first test subject in the Young New Yorkers program. I was invited to a dinner. Um, Upon successful completion, Daniel had no idea that they would expunge his felony arrest from his record. So the judge was at the dinner I was at that sentenced him originally. He was told that they were going to remove his felony. And he had an acceptance letter with him from John Jay Law School. He would not have been eligible for law school had he had a felony on his record. So Daniel has graduated John Jay. He's a teacher with the Young New Yorkers program right now. He's going back for his master's. Hey,
2: let's hear a for Gina. Hey. David.
1: Thank you, thank you. I saw the power in the program the very first session, and I was just like, wow, this is so powerful. And I also saw myself and a lot of the kids that came through the doors. Of course you did. Our first workshops were done in the Brooklyn Criminal Court. So now I'm walking into criminal court through the employee entrance. I'm not getting searched. I got to pee. I'm using the judge's chambers. And like this is the same courtroom that I was sentenced at for writing graffiti when I was 16 years old. So it was absolutely surreal, like, being in that setting. So now we host the uh, classes at the Department of Probation on Adams Street in Brooklyn, and we do eight-week cycles. We do one-day programs, and upon successful completion of the program, our uh, young adults have the arrests expunged from their records, and they can move forward without being burdened by any adult sanctions on their record. And more importantly... We get to bypass the criminal justice system, which allows them not to get comfortable in a court setting.
2: Indeed. So, or in a jail setting.
1: Without a doubt, because you don't want this to be a process that kids get familiar with.
2: Once you're sort of like in that system, it's very hard to, to get out of it. Some burning questions. What's more important, bombing or piecing?
1: Um, bombing. At this stage in my life, though, piecing, but bombing still.
2: <gasps> okay, Yes, bombing. Bombing stops. So when did you transition from being a inside bomber who didn't have art skills to being a piecer who does characters and very complex, you know, letter forms and So I think I didn't I had no desire to
1: do pieces growing up. I just wanted to bomb. I just wanted to get up and then Later in life, my friend's like, we got a legal wall. We got a place we can paint. Maybe it's not legal, but we're going to do pieces. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And you know, here I was foolishly showing up thinking like I'm Jay-Z and I could just not show up with a outline, get in the booth and spit a verse and kill it one shot and realize like oh, this isn't coming out the way I planned because I didn't plan. And from doing design work and working at a magazine, I started to realize that designing – something is a process. Mm-hmm. And you know, you scan something and then it's skewing and color correcting and font placement and and it I became more patient with the actual process of piecing suddenly and it made me realize why the previous efforts were all failed was that I was showing up unprepared and I didn't have caps, I didn't have a color scheme, I didn't have an outline. And once I started to respect the process, it became a lot more fun and enjoyable. And um, I think it's still an evolution where, like, you know, I don't always love the things I do, but every now and again I'm like, that actually came out pretty fucking cool. or That was fun. I want to do some Indeed. more. So that's sort of, you know, how that came about. It wasn't my first choice, and then I kind of grew into it, and now I legitimately enjoy painting with my friends.
2: What do you think the future of graffiti Is going to be in the next 10 years, is it still on an upper tick of popularity, collecting, being taken seriously in the art world, which sort of, again, treats it like the ugly cousin? What do you see in the future of this
1: culture? It's difficult uh, to call. I mean, it started, it was on buses, trains, and stairwells and bathrooms when I was growing up. Be hard-pressed to find that stuff in most of those spaces today. The evolution kind of put it on streets, but New York's is cl- about as clean as I've ever seen it. I'm not discounting anyone that's out there still bombing because there are lots of guys still doing it. Women. And women.
2: Yeah, PMS crew. Killing
1: Entirely. <laughs> guys, and by guys, I mean guys and guys. Yes, cows. yes, yes. But um, it feels like graffiti's kind of been relegated to the hood. Like, if you go on their most elevated train stations— so Even the
2: Bronx, saw, like a a lot of the piecing walls that existed for, for decades, are are gone now. What do you think? Because I know you know what's up. What do you think about the female participation in graffiti? You were you knew SS and chick, or you were very yes. Um,
1: so uh, the because G- they're
2: like sort of like unsung female, undeniably like yeah, bombing they- partners that people never knew about because there was no internet.
1: There was no internet, and they were also on the letter lines, which, you know, um, when I look at graffiti, it's like the IRT line was the NBA, okay, and the letter lines were like the ABA. It was that, like, minor league, but they destroyed shit. They killed it, and when I was in junior high school, one of the junior high schools that my mom moved me to, after I got left back, I had to switch schools. I was in a magnet school. I was in this, like... Really good satellite school, my first year of junior high school. I was held back because of the time I spent in the hospital, and uh, I was pushed to a school in Brooklyn Heights. My mom thought that if she put me in a white school, that like good kids would rub off on me, Sure. not understanding that it was a whole other level of dysfunction. Kids (laughs) were having sex and smoking cigarettes and drinking (laughs) beer at lunch, and it was this whole other— historically, I'd gone to school in the hood, you know, like the school before that was in Farragut Projects. Like, I was in the hood. Did you
2: find that there was a different quality of education?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the school that I was in was a magnet school originally, so it was really like strict school. I think I was one of like three kids out of my elementary school that made it into that junior high school. Yeah, it was strict. And then the school, the next school was good, but it was a little bit more relaxed and I just stopped. I lost interest in school, so I couldn't even tell you what was going on in the classroom, to be quite honest. Like, I wasn't, I didn't spend enough time in the classroom to say I learned much in junior high school, unfortunately. But SS and Chick were local to my school. They were getting up in the schoolyards and taking tags in the neighborhood. They had friends in the area. I met them probably when I was 12 years old, 13. And I think the last time I saw Chick, I was 14 years old. But um, they were huge inspirations to me. They got up and, you know, I've shared this story before, but Chick has three of the same letters I have in my name. And I noticed that she would sometimes connect the uh, bar from her H into her I. So that was really instrumental in me developing my very first signature style. And then one day I noticed she connected the C to her H. And that whole concept of connecting your letters and having them flow... When I take a tag, it's kind of one seamless flow, and I can keep it moving without pulling the can too far from the wall or having to skip or stop at any point. So that whole concept of connecting my letters was borrowed from Chick and still survives today. But they were huge, huge influences on me growing up, and they're two of the more unsung
2: Absolutely. female
1: heroes within the culture. Absolutely. And there were tons of other girls that did really dope shit while I was growing up. Too Cute and Abby and, like, oh, yeah. so many people. Lady Heart, obviously, everyone knows Pink, and um, you and Seventeen got it in, and there you were know? a ton of people that... Uh,
2: so why do you think women or females are so underrepresented in in this culture?
1: It's such a male-dominated, male-heavy culture to begin with that I don't know what the uh, attraction would be to be like, I want to go
2: paint with those dudes. Like, I'm not really sure what that— Oh, you're like, you know, fuck these dudes. Like, I can do this. Like, fuck them, trying to, like, relegate me into a, a role that I, I don't want to be in. I, I can do this. And you brought up with the garden at Rikers— For me, it was the first time I was applying success, self-actualizing in a real way that wasn't like, I have to do my homework, or I have to finish this stuff for work, or it uh, was—if I had learned that feeling, that skill early on, possibly I never would have written graffiti. But it was— For me, it was graffiti that taught me that I could do the same thing as a guy. Hence, my feminism was born.
1: So what I will say, (laughs) SS and Chick, one thing that I learned early in life that was super helpful was dudes would be like, yeah, they got up for girls. And I was like, no, no, correction. They got up, period. They did? And I learned that, like— so every now and again I'll hear someone say some shit like, yo, yeah, she's really good for it. I'm like, dude, you need to correct you. That's so fucking outdated. Like Yeah,
2: because the we're not doing it as women. We're doing we're just writers, just like everyone else. And we're out to crush everyone.
1: So so every now and again I'll see a conversation and someone's like, yo, Mad C's dope for a girl. I'm like, dude, she's just dope, period.
2: She's super dope. Crazy super dope. Yes, it is very male and it's very um aggressive. It's uh v- you know, has elements of violence and gang sort of warfare, right? It's it, it, I always used to say like oh, it doesn't have really anything to do with like gang stuff, but it does. Do you feel there's a there's a less uh daunting reputation for graffiti now as You know, where you can sort of be like a lone wolf without a backup of a crew and sort of flourish.
1: I think that it would be easier now more than ever. Like, I think that growing up, you might have needed a crew to feel safe. You might have needed somebody to take you under your wing and kind of uh, get you familiar with all the nuances and like practices and things, what to do and what not to do. And I think that information is readily available, whether or not you have a mentor or someone that can put you on. I think that you can watch enough on the internet.
2: Well, don't you think graffiti has sadly dropped the ball with mentorship, where it was more sort of hand down to the next, sort of, I felt my education happened from my my elders and though they weren't really telling me how to write graffiti they were telling me their stories i just applied it to myself don't you think there is has been like a significant sort of chopping off to the next generation uh, to to our detriment
1: undeniably it's such a double edged sword right like older the older generation is so pissed that the younger generation isn't familiar with their generation, but you've done nothing to help the situation. And you know the last thing an aspiring 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, 17-year-old young adult wants to hear is like, yo, you got to do this, son, and when I was a kid and... Like these old war stories aren't exciting. And if you're going to be critical of somebody, that's not encouraging them or pointing them in the right position or, or, or helping them to be successful at what is they're doing. And the older generation's angry at the younger generation, like, sadly.
2: It's, it's, it's terrible, and I felt as though, you're, you're the same age as me, but you started writing graffiti much younger than I did. But I was sort of like the last to be like, okay, you're going to fucking do this, Claudia? Like, you better fucking improve, okay? Like, it's, it's a mess. And for me, my whole sort of graffiti career, especially my re- in my retirement of illegally writing graffiti, is to love and nurture the young people because they don't get it. And it's sort of, I- I'm watching a parallel with rap music now, right? Oh, these guys mumble rappers, they suck, tattoo your face, this was whack, that's whack. Why do you think there is such a disconnect? Because of the competitiveness?
1: I think that it's uh, every generation's duty to uh, criticize what the next generation is doing, and um,
2: it's some Archie Bunker shit though. And, and, and
1: it's 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 their duty to criticize the whatever it is they're doing and remind them that it was much better while they were doing it (laughs) and how much harder it was when they were doing it. You know, when I was a kid, I had to walk 30 miles to steal spray paint. That's right, that's right. You know, when I was 14 years old, I learned my way around the train tunnel and, you know, how to step over a third rail and how to open a door without a key and how to kick open the conductor's door and find the light switch in the dark and turn the fan on and make a homemade train key and... The blue light in the tunnel means that there's a fire extinguisher nearby and there's a phone nearby and I can use that phone and get an outside line and call one of my friends and be like, hey, I'm in 155th Street Layup and my boys from CAC, Dole, Sui and HP are like, yo, we're upstairs, we're going to come down with ink. And I learned how to use the train, like I learned my way around the tunnel at 14 years old from a 15-year-old boy. That learned it from another 15 year old the year before he taught me, right? None of us took a nine week federally mandated, state mandated OSHA get, test to right, learn our way and you around. Didn't
2: get cliff Notes right? or maps. It, it, it
1: was just this young generation passing on trade secrets. And that was the beauty of having a mentorship, was that someone could really put you on. And and all of this information was priceless. And then I take someone under my wing and teach it to him. And that's how tradition survives and is carried on, right? So if you want people to care about the things you care about, you have to show them what it is to care about and kind of give them the insight in in, in a good foundation, I think, in the culture. And that doesn't exist anymore. Dudes are super bitter. And I get it. I think that, you know, it's got to be very difficult. To be the most popular you will ever be between the ages of 13 and 15 years old and not be able to recreate that magic anywhere else in your real world. Peak too young. I mean, we, we you can look, look at— Look at these
2: child stars. W- I mean, they're a fucking mess.
1: Spot on, right? Yep. Exactly. And then the idea, like, is how do I get back in the spotlight? And it's a really desperate measure or not the well-thought-out, you know, like— you see your favorite heroes doing reality TV show, and you're like, oh, God, like, why is Whitney Houston doing the oh Cabbage man, Patch on oh, Being stop, Bobby Brown right now? Stop, stop. She was this amazing singer, and how did she end up here? And when you fall from the spotlight, it's kind of hard to figure out where your in is. But I I can tell that there are people that are bitter, and the internet is very disillusioning. And they're seeing people overseas holding spray paint and signing shit in front of crowds. And not understanding that there was some real legwork that took to get there. That didn't happen by accident, you know? Like, the definition of success is where your hard work meets an opportunity, right? So if you continue to work hard and you get these opportunities, that's how these things happen. And I talk to people. They're like, yo, bro, you got the hookups. And I'm like, the hookups? It took me six years to get this shit together. Like, are you Absolutely. kidding me? We've been working on this quietly for so long. And people are like, yo, get me a book deal. get me, And I'm like, dude, like, if I could— get a book deal that I'd given myself a Simon & Schuster book deal 20 years ago. Like, I wouldn't have waited this long. And it's like, I think the illusion or the disillusion is that, like, people are out there living, and my generation didn't get any of this, and people are angry. They're they're More importantly, I think they're more disappointed with their own lack of success or not understanding how to turn a corner. You well, know, like, right. like, most of us are street guys that came from street graffiti.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there was no, like— workshop or life lesson that taught them how to navigate or turn the corner from being in the street into a professional space. And even if you learn the work, like the soft skills to sell yourself and s- like secure an opportunity and...
2: No, it's very rare. It, it, not m- it, Most people can't do that.
1: It's just not always uh, their strong suit. And so it's, I know it's got to be difficult, but people end up bitter in the process and it's so disappointing, because the last thing I want to see is one of my someone that I spent so many years looking up to on the internet complaining day in and day out on their social media, on their Facebook, just complaining about shit. and I'm like, I gotta get away from the computer. And thankfully, I understand that there's a real world outside of my computer screen and off my social media that that, I, that I'm a part of, right and, and that there's a place for me there. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunities, but I I see why people are bitter and they're angry at the next generation, and um, I just think people aren't happy. If you legitimately love yourself, I don't think that you wake up and have the room to hurt or put anyone else down when you're genuinely happy with yourself. Of course, right? Is that hurt? I mean, it's as cliche as this is. Hurt people hurt other people. The and,
2: abuser's abuse. And, yes. and when you
1: are in love with life and happy with your day, there's no room for you to look at some, what what anyone else is doing and be critical of what it is they're doing. So, um, you know, it took me a lot of years to get to the space to understand this. This is a more mature me. 20 years ago, I was angry and fuck this guy and fuck that and that's corny and this sucks and most of that shit didn't suck. I just didn't understand it at the time. Right? I didn't take the time to appreciate it.
2: Personal growth. You heard it here first. All right, my last question. What is the most important error, whether you were involved in it or not, whether you're a participatory person or you're a pedestrian watching it from the sideline? What's the golden age of graffiti, in your opinion? I
1: think I have a multi-pronged answer for you. Of course
2: you do. So... (laughs)
1: Clearly, the earliest generation of subway graffiti is is such a, a magical time. It
2: is indeed. Let's hear it for the
1: forefathers. There, there are all of these fascinating, creative practices and innovations that were enduring that lasted forty years later. It's like the br- blueprints of an automobile; like it essentially is the same, but the forty-year-old car and the twenty-nineteen car aesthetically are just correct, completely different vehicles, right? But they were all of these fascinating enduring contributions to the culture that were made by kids that weren't old enough to legally vote or drink or stay out at the hour that they were painting which is absolutely fascinating to me and the fact that like new york was such a segregated city during the 70s i don't think people understand just how segregated it new really york was. was we were segregated by class and race and economic status and
2: but the subway was the great equalizer un- and everyone rode the subway
1: undeniably in, in New York City subway graffiti was this very unique New York pastime that had the power to bring kids from all backgrounds together unlike anything New York had seen previously so that's absolutely amazing and i think that the 70s undeniably deserves all of the props in the world. And then, you know, we look at this era where Lee was painting and, and, and Blade was pa- And there were all these whole cars being done by Kane and, like— Masterpieces. You know, so um, I've studied the film Stations of the Elevated. Um, I was hired by the film company to—I uh, I did something with uh, the film company for Charlie Ahern's film, Jamel Shabazz, Street Photographer— And during a conversation, like we have licensing to do uh, digitally remaster stations of the Elevated. Would you mind going through the film and pay you? We'll figure out maybe a sort of a record or a log of some of the graffiti that appears here. And maybe you can help us set up some things for the screenings. And I researched the film. And when I had an opportunity to scrutinize this film in HD, a digitally remastered copy, and actually pause things, I realized that there were cars back to back to back to back to back that a whole car is running in this film. And it's just such an amazing time for graffiti because it wasn't kind of like the same beef generation that my generation—like all of those coal cars would have throw-ups on them if it were the 80s. Sure. So it really seems like a very magical time. But my generation of graffiti is important, you know? Um, I think that it was the first generation of people that had an opportunity to travel because of what they did and show in galleries and sell artwork— And then you know this later generation of graffiti kind of figured out how to monetize this thing and and take their talents to do something creative. Like when we were kids, there was no next level for graffiti. You know, it's right. It was
2: like galleries or streets. Yeah. yeah.
1: Or when you got done, you got a real job somewhere else and did some shit. were a
2: graphic designer. Well, those
1: graphic design opportunities, I think, were available to that later generation of graffiti. Like, I don't see many of the early 80s or 70s guys. Say is maybe a, a, an exception to the rule.
2: Say, and then, like, well, I mean, look at West and Stash. Well, so that's a little bit later, okay, and,
1: and, okay. and that's what I'm touching on, is okay. that it was the Wests and the Stashes and the, um, you know, guys like that and Todd James and all of these interesting folks from a later generation that helped create the next level, that, that there were these— now that there are these opportunities that sort of run the gamut, you know, if you write graffiti, you don't just have to be a tattoo artist or you don't just have to be a graphic designer. You can be an animator or you can, you know, curate shows or create fine art. And there are all of these interesting opportunities that didn't exist to some of the previous generations. You know, I mean, Futura, like, shout out, like, he's one of the early guys that really found the space— amongst these later guys
2: he was a pioneer a rule maker and a rule breaker And,
1: and a pioneer within all of this you know post graffiti like design stuff which is huge so props to him but I think that that generation of graffiti the later generations really helped create sort of like or at least put the world on notice that like there are opportunities for us we're not just guys that can paint on trains and walls like we're gonna make a different corporate space and I see T-shirts in Macy's and everywhere else, and I'm like, my man designed that, and this guy designed that. That's right. There were times where all these apparel brands, Sean John and Everlast and uh, Rockaware, and they were all staffed by graffiti artists.
2: Well, truth be told, graffiti gives you a skill set that other graphic designers don't have. And the truth of the matter is, when it comes to graphic design, it really is about letters and when you grow up writing letters and printing letters and painting letters and fitting letters together and nesting them and you have you have the jump on every other uh graphic designer
1: well graffiti artists are also super
2: competitive
1: so there's an inner drive i think that separates a passionate graffiti writer from the average human being is that you know I would obsess about catching a spot, and if it meant standing outside somewhere until the sun went down or the sun came up to get it, that's what we did to do it. And, you know, um, if you Get the job done. By all means. And if you're willing to, no matter what it takes, I'm going to get this done attitude, then you've clearly got an edge over everyone else in the room.
2: So what is next on your list after this book?
1: Interesting. Um— I have a uh, teaching residency coming up in Guatemala City. It's through the State Department.
2: Whoa. The
1: the University of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I have some book launches coming up. Okay. Big show coming up in the spring that we're working on. Oh, okay. That I hope to share more soon. Great. Um, And yeah, there's some really cool projects on the shuffle that I'm excited about. And, you know, typically uh, it's hard to share them before they- I know you can't. It's like you really just want to invite everyone to the launch or the opening. You cannot, but there are some really fun projects. Spill the beans in You're the not. shuffle that are uh, that, that have me excited right now.
2: Well, to find out more, please check out David on Instagram at Chino. Byi. Byi. Chino. No dots. He's also all over YouTube. All the comments say that he is the Obama of graffiti and do pick up his new book The that,
1: ABCs The style. ABCs
2: of style that is coming out at the end of this month. Yes. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you, you
0: Claudia. You too.
2: I am really impressed with David. Besides the fact that we didn't get along for 25 plus years and not because he was a criminal because we all were. We were in different sex and there was beef and all sorts of stuff but you know we're all mature adults. Some more mature than others. David with his laser focus on getting graffiti to be recognized as a real force in the art world, David as the man who cares about the kids that are thrown into the gutter, helping them because he knows, because he was them. Somebody who has changed their journey their course by someone believing in them and now he is the one that does that for these kids. It's incredible. I have to say I'm really taken back and I do a lot of mentorships and charity stuff, but I don't take it to the level like that and we need more of that in this world. Come step up and do something for your community, people. It's important. We need it. Thanks so much. Remember, everyone, subscribe and comment. And we're up on iTunes now. Get on there and show your girl some love. Or don't and show me some hate, but just let us know that you are listening. Find us at Claw Money on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Find our kids' brand at Claw Mini on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm at the boutique seven days a week. Delancey and Ludlow, New York City. Online at clawandco.com. I'd like to thank David Villarente. I'd like to thank my producer, Jose Alfaro. Our co-producer, Emma Fox. Bubbles New York City for the tracks.